One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. A woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Rabbi, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. And then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in shalom. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever we read stories about money in the Bible, I think we never grasp how dramatic these stories were to the first people who heard them because monetary values have changed so much. When we read from scholars that Jesus grew up in a little village of 200 to 250 people and that the people there were on subsistence living, that may fly right past. You have to hear Jesus' stories about how the men would go into the marketplace and hope somebody would come and hire them for the day. Beans to be picked, grapes to be harvested, olives to be scooped up off the ground. And if they worked all day, they would receive one denarius, enough to buy dinner and breakfast for their family for one more day. I've told you this about my father and mother. It's absolutely true. My father and mother married in 1939. The Great Depression still had Texas and Oklahoma in its grasp. My father had dropped out of high school because he was the only son in the family. He had five sisters and a mother. They had borrowed from the bank to plant their crops. They had a little 100-acre farm. The next year, it did not rain. They borrowed some more. It did not rain. They borrowed some more. It did not rain. And the bank took half their farm. So now they had 50 acres of subsistence living. When my father and mother were married, my dad got a job at the basket factory in our hometown where they made bushel baskets for farmers so they could move tomatoes, corn around. He walked three miles every morning. He worked 12 hours. He walked three miles home, and he was paid 50 cents a day. 
He had one pair of pants, one shirt. He came home sweat-soaked. My mother would wash them out by hand and iron them dry so he'd have something to wear to work the next morning. Do you understand what this story would have meant to them? That you owe two months' pay? That you owe two years' pay? So what does this story say to the first hearers? Number one, we all are debtors. In fact, the Lord's Prayer can be translated, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We have an account. God has an account. God has made regular deposits to his. We have not to ours. We've gotten behind. There's no way we can catch up. Everybody is a debtor. Not only is this woman known to be a sinner, but you too, my Pharisaic friend, you too are a debtor. When I was in high school, I never read Ernest Hemingway. But when I got to college, I did read Ernest Hemingway. I was fascinated. It was a life I couldn't imagine. In Paris with a movable feast, hunting in Africa with snows of Kilimanjaro, across the river and into the woods. I couldn't imagine living at Key West, Florida. You got up and tried to write two pages a day, and then you got to fish and drink the rest of the day, chase women. Ernest Hemingway was a character I couldn't even imagine. But I read, I read The Old Man in the Sea, even though I'd never been fishing on an ocean in my life. It was a fascinating story. Then when suddenly shot himself in the head, I couldn't have believed it. Couldn't believe it. So I read Hoshner's biography called Papa. Maybe you read it too. I wanted to know about this guy, Ernest Hemingway. How could he have had so much and suddenly grown so tired of life that he ended it himself? What happened? Well, Hotchner helped in some ways, and others have tried since then to write other biographies of Hemingway. One of them says all of his life, Hemingway was looking for sanctity. Sanctity, that's our word. That comes from Latin, sanctus, means holy in English. But holy and sanctus both mean set apart. Set apart for what? Ernest Hemingway? Sanctity? Come on. This author says, oh yes, look at that character in Across the River and Into the Woods who said, why can I not be good and kind? Oh God, help me not to do the bad. And then he concludes, I believe Ernest Hemingway really wanted to be a different kind of person from the one he was. But he self-destructed at every turn. We're all debtors. Paul said we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, the creditor forgave the debts. Those who owed two months' pay and those who owed two years' pay. 
forgave them all. Dr. Scott Peck wrote a very successful book some years ago called A Road Less Traveled. In that book, he says, any relationship needs regular deposits to be made into it because every relationship has some times when you're just withdrawing. And if you haven't made sufficient deposits, you'll bankrupt that relationship. When I was a boy, I had friends. My best friend, 12 years, first grade through 12th. Mike was just the best friend. And then he went away to college, Texas A&M, took civil engineering. And I started theology studies to become a minister. A couple of years later when I saw him, we didn't have anything to talk about. And the next time I saw him, we had even less. But then the bishop sent me to Houston after graduate school, and I saw Mike again. We joined a volleyball team. He was a really good athlete. He'd been our fullback. I was our defensive captain back in high school. He'd gone to A&M on a football scholarship. He wasn't as tall as I. He was a great set man, and I was a great spiker. We played volleyball every Monday night. Our wives and our little children got together while we were playing volleyball. And I really enjoyed being around him again. And then Bishop Galloway sent me to Beaumont, Texas, and I didn't see him anymore. And the next time I saw him, we had nothing to talk about. Every relationship needs regular deposits into it. If you don't make regular deposits, it bankrupts. It dies. Well, you and I failed to make a payment here and a payment there, and God just kept on depositing into his side of the account. Steadfast love, the Jews taught us. Chesed, chesed. Steadfast, never-failing love. That's what God's been putting into this relationship all these centuries. And we failed him. Failed him. And he made one terrific deposit for us Gentiles in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christos, the Messiah, God in flesh. I was with Dr. Charles Allen in Houston seven years, seven wonderful years for me. I got to sit right behind him, as close as Dr. Carver is to me now, every Sunday morning for seven years. Twice, every Sunday morning, I heard him. I was liturgist, working right that alongside. And then on Sunday nights, he sat on one side, I sat on the other. He would give the evening prayer, welcome everybody. I would stand up and preach all those Sunday nights. He was wonderful. A couple of years before Bishop Galloway sent me on to Beaumont, Texas, Dr. Allen wrote another book. He wrote almost 50 of them. He's one of the best-selling authors of religious books at that time. And then this one was called The Miracle of Love. I put it on the shelf. He autographed me a copy. I didn't read it because I didn't want people in Beaumont and other places to think, well, he's just doing Charles Allen stuff. You know, he's just doing Charles Allen stuff. So I didn't read. And last summer, I decided to read Charles Allen. I got out all the books he had written that he had autographed to me during the time I was there, and I just started reading them at night, reading one after the other. In that book, The Miracle of Love, he talks about preaching in a small town. 
He'd been invited to do a revival kind of series, and he was invited one night to have dinner with young family in that church. So he said uh, they picked him up at the motel and drove him over. He and the young men were talking together in the living room when the wife called out from the kitchen that she needed her husband to come help just a second. And so he said, excuse me, Dr. Allen. He went on into the kitchen. And Dr. Allen said, I was sitting there in the living room by myself when their little daughter came in. She had a doll in her arm and asked if I could see her dolly. She handed it to me. I made over it, oh, what a beautiful dolly. What a beautiful dolly. And she left the room. She came back with another one. So I made over it. Oh, what a beautiful doll. This one has blonde hair and this one has black hair. And so she went and got another one. And I made over it as well. And then I asked her, but which one is your favorite? And she looked at me and then asked, would you not laugh? I said, I won't laugh. And she went back to her room and came back with a dolly that had lost all its hair, was missing a left arm and a right leg. It had scratches on its cheeks. I said, why do you love this one best of all? And she said, because nobody else does. Wow, he wrote. The miracle of love. And the greatest miracle of all was that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Number three, but this is a story finally about how you act. How do you act? This Pharisee Jesus may well have been one himself, scholars say. This was a lover's quarrel between him and some of the Pharisees. Invited Jesus to dinner. Now, this was a very nice dinner. People reclined at table, didn't sit in chairs. Stretched out on pillows, leaned on one elbow and ate with the other hand, usually without utensils. They used their hands and bread and dipped. Their feet moving away from the table. A woman started weeping at Jesus' feet, tears dropping onto his feet. So she started wiping the tears off his feet with her own hair and kissing his feet. So this judgmental Pharisee who says, well, obviously he's not a prophet, because if he were a prophet, he would know this woman's unclean. And for her to touch him makes him unclean too. And Jesus pointed out, I not only know who she is and what she is, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. And then he told the story about the creditor and the two debtors. And then he pointed a finger at the Pharisee and said, You know, if you were a really good host, when I arrived, you would have furnished water for me to wash my dusty feet. If you were a really good host, you would have kissed me on either cheek when I arrived. If you were a really good host, you would have taken some of that lanolin from the sheep and given it to me to put on my dry, wind-blown hair. She's done all of this for me. What do you do? The Bible's strong on hospitality. 
hospitality, meeting the need of the other. A couple of months ago, I was standing in the the great hall here behind after church, greeting people as they left, telling them, "Thank, thank you for coming, thank you for helping us. And suddenly a couple I didn't recognize at all and uh, the man said, I'm James Underwood. He introduced his, his wife to me. And I said, I'm glad to meet you, James and Dorothy. How are you? Fine. Are you new in Tulsa? Well, no, we live in Centralia, Illinois. I said, oh, just passing through? Well, no, they said, we have family here in Tulsa. And they wanted us to come to Boston Avenue today. I said, well, I'm so glad. Thank you for coming. Next time you come to Tulsa, I hope you'll want to come back to Boston Avenue. He said, we enjoyed our visit. We've blessed. Thank you very much. And they left. But a few days later, I got a little package from Centralia, Illinois. And inside there was a little book. And then I discovered from the return address, this fellow's president of a college in Centralia, Illinois. He's Dr. James Underwood. And he said... I came across this little book. As I looked at the size of your congregation, I figured you must do a lot of funerals. And I found a little book that helps me, written by Linda Ellis, particularly the poem on a certain page. Here it is. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of his friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of her birth and spoke of the second with tears. But he said that what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth. And now only those who loved her know what that little line is worth. Are there people you've left behind? Things you've left unsaid? Words you need to think again, fences you need to mend. Be less quick to anger, show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved them before. Can we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile? Remember that this special dash might only last a while. Number four. After Jesus reprimands his host, he turns to the woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 500 years ago, Martin Luther read again Paul's letter to the Romans. And when he had finished, he shouted, Sola fide, sola grazia. Grace alone faith alone. It is God's grace that saves us. His unmerited love, His making deposit into our account when we're bankrupt, or His forgiving our debt. God, God's grace. But the sola fide means faith alone, from which we get the word fidelity. Or as one of our Christmas carols begin, Adeste Fidelis, O come, all ye faithful. Or as the writer of Revelation says, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door, I will come in. So her faith has saved her because it means she 
received the gift. She opened the door. She welcomed God's love into her life. A few weeks ago, Martha Jo Bradley called me. Many of you know Martha Jo. She and John have been in this church so many years. After his death, she's continued to be so faithful. Their son, John, is our communion steward now, does such a great job setting up communion for us on all the different occasions when we celebrate the sacrament. Martha Jo had been cleaning out a few things. She had two books she wanted me to have. I said, I'd love to have them. One of them is an autobiography of Dr. Forney Hutchinson. So I started reading it. Dr. Forney Hutchinson, the man whom some say saved Boston Avenue Methodist Church. 1927, this building was begun. The church was at 5th and Boston. They felt if they could move eight blocks south, they could gradually accumulate, accumulate a little more property and have more and more room to grow. The church was completed in time for Easter Sunday services, 1929. The congregation came marching down Boston Avenue from 5th Street all the way to 13th, up the North Steps, and had Easter Sunday services. Six months later, the stock market crashed. Just to tell you one of the stories, the chairs of the building committee were Mr. and Mrs. Christopher Columbus Cole. They owned the property that's now known as Veterans Park. That's where their home sat. And when the Great Depression came, they sold that beautiful piece of property and their home so they could keep paying their pledge to pay off this church. But they weren't, they weren't enough. There were too many others who had lost everything, could not pay their pledge. So five years in, in 1934... The insurance company out of Omaha, Nebraska, that held a lien on the building were threatening to foreclose and make it into a movie theater. Three men from the church got on a train, rode to Omaha, Nebraska, met with the board of that insurance company and begged them not to foreclose. They kept telling them, we're honest. You know we're honest. We wouldn't cheat you out of a dime. We're having a hard time. Extend our loan. Extend the board said to them, get yourselves some lunch, come back at 2 o'clock, we'll give you our decision. The three of them went back at 2 o'clock. They have no idea what calls were made during that period, but this board of the insurance company said, if you go back to Oklahoma, talk your bishop into appointing one of these three men, we will extend the loan. They said, we can't speak for the bishop, but we will certainly make our plea. They got on the train, rode home to Tulsa, got in touch with the bishop, gave him the three names. He said, this one is at a major church. He's in a major building program. There's no way he's going to leave. This one is in a major church, in a major building program. There's no way he's going to leave. This one, Forney Hutchinson, he's almost 60 years old. He's not in good health. He had malaria when he was a boy. It recurs from time to time. He's had vision problems. I don't know if he had come to Tulsa or not. I'll call his bishop. Dr. Forney Hutchinson came, 1934. Stayed five years. He was almost 65 when he retired from here. But the church had made every payment during those five years, and they were on solid footing again. 
Dr. Forney Hutchinson, born in 1875. His mother died when he was a little boy. She was only 32 and had already given birth to five children. She died at 32. Forney said we were all taken to grandparents to live. But in less than a year, my father found a new wife, and it couldn't have been greater. She threw her arms around the five of us and loved us with all her heart for the rest of our lives. Talked about camp meetings, August camp meetings in Arkansas. He grew up at a little farm just north of Nashville, Arkansas. That's a godforsaken place for sure. And he talked about this camp meeting they had every August. People would come and set up tents and stay a whole week. He said they had prayer meeting before they had breakfast, preaching at 9, take a little break, preaching at 11, have lunch. Some would take a little nap, preaching at 3, dinner time, preaching would begin at 7 under the old tabernacle. He said there were candles. This is in 1886. Candles, pine knots burning around the edges. And that summer when I was 11, every sermon was speaking just to me. I could sense it. And one night as they sang, I went forward. And a dear woman I'd known all my life knelt beside me. And she whispered, do you hear what they're singing? They were singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. At 68, when he wrote the book, he still remembered what they were singing. And she whispered, Can you sing that song? I nodded my head. She signaled to the preacher. He brought a pitcher of water, and as I felt it running down over my head and into my collar, this wonderful peace and assurance swept over me. I had done the right thing. 